0: Hello, I'm Bob Keezer. This is the Son of Man Urantia Project. Today's episode is Chapter 38 The Decapolis Tour. When Jesus and the Apostles arrived at Magadan Park, there were already almost 100 disciples and evangelists, including the Women's Corps waiting for them and ready to immediately begin working across the Decapolis. It was Thursday morning, August 18th. Jesus told each of the apostles to pair up with one of the evangelists and for the twelve groups of two to go out and begin visiting the cities and villages in the area. They were to return to Magadan no later than Friday, September 16th. Jesus told the twenty-four he'd visit them often. The women's corps and the other disciples he told to stay there with him. Throughout this month, the twelve groups taught in Jerasa, Gamala, Hippos, Zephon, Gadara, Abila, Edria, Philadelphia, Heshbon, Dium, Cephopolis, and many other cities. No miracles or other extraordinary events took place this year. The Sermon on Forgiveness One evening at Hippos, while answering questions, Jesus taught the lesson on forgiveness. He said, If a compassionate man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off and gets lost, does he not immediately leave the other 99 to go out and look for the one lost? And, if he is a good shepherd, will he not keep looking for the lost sheep until he finds it? And when this guy finds his lost animal, he picks it up, carries it home, and calls to all of his friends to rejoice with him for finding his sheep that was lost. I am telling you right now that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Even so, it is not the will of my Father in heaven that even one of these little ones should go astray, much less that they should perish. In your religion, God may receive repentant sinners, those people who have sinned and then asked God for forgiveness. But in the gospel of the kingdom, God the Father goes out looking to find sinners even before they have seriously thought of repenting or asking Him for forgiveness. The Father in heaven loves His children, and that means that you should learn to love one another. The Father in heaven forgives your sins, and that means you should learn to forgive one another. If your brother sins against you, go to him and with tact and patience tell him what he did, and do this just between you and him alone. If he listens to you, then you have won your brother. But if he doesn't hear you, if he continues to do what is wrong, bring a mutual friend or two along so that everyone else will know that you were just and merciful in dealing with your friend who did you wrong. Then, if that does not work, tell your side of the story to the whole group of his, of friends and if this person still refuses to admit what he did wrong, then the group has the right to do as they see fit and to cast him out of the kingdom. No, you cannot pretend to judge other men's souls or forgive sins or go above your pay grade, so to speak, and exercise authority that is not yours. But you do have the right to, and the obligation to maintain order in the, kingdom of, in the kingdom on earth. While you have no say concerning someone's divine gift of eternal life, you do have the right to set rules of conduct for the welfare of the brotherhood on earth. And those rules will be recognized as valid in heaven. Whenever two or three of you agree on these things, and it is not against the Father's will, it will be done for you. Whenever two or three believers are gathered together, I am there with them. When Simon Peter, who is in charge of the workers in Hippos, heard this, he said, Lord, how many times... Should I let my brother sin against me and still forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, Not only seven times, but even up to seventy-seven times. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who ordered a financial accounting of the people in his court. And when he found out that one of his chief officers, owed him 10,000 talents, the king ordered that his property be taken, and his children sold off to pay his debt. This man pleaded that hard times had fallen on him, and he fell down on his face and begged for mercy and more time to pay his debt, saying, Lord, have a little more patience with me, and I will pay you all I owe. And the king was moved with compassion and ordered the man released and his loan completely forgiven. Then this chief officer of the court, after having received mercy and forgiveness from the king, went about his business. And when he found out that one of his staff owed him a mere 100 denarii, he grabbed him by the throat and said, Pay me all you owe. To this, the man fell down on his face before the chief steward and said, Only have patience with me, and I will soon be able to pay you. But instead, the chief steward showed no mercy and had the man tossed into prison until he could pay his debt. When this man's friends saw this, they went and told the king. When the king heard of this, he called for his chief steward and said, You are a wicked and unworthy steward. When you asked for compassion, I freely forgave you your entire debt. Why did you not also show mercy to your fellow steward, like I showed mercy to you? And, the king was so angry that he sent his ungrateful chief steward to the jailers until he had paid all that he was due, All that was due. And in the same way, my heavenly Father will show more abundant mercy to those who freely show mercy to others. How can you come to God asking for consideration for your failings? when you accuse your friends of being guilty of those same human frailties. I say to all of you, freely you have received the good things of the kingdom. Because of that, freely give to the others on earth. And that was how Jesus taught the dangers and unfairness of one of us judging someone else. Discipline must be kept, and justice must be given. But these are matters for the brotherhood to decide. Jesus gave the authority to enact laws and keep the peace to the group, not to the individual. And even that group authority must not be exercised as someone's personal authority. There is always the danger that the verdict of a single person can be warped by prejudice or passion. Group judgment is more likely to stop the unfairness of personal bias. Jesus always looked for ways to minimize unfairness, retaliation, and vengeance. The use of the number 77 when illustrating mercy and forgiveness came from the scripture where Lamech says that because of his son's, Tybal Cain's, metal weapons compared to those of his enemies, if Cain, with no weapon in his hand, was avenged seven times, I will now be avenged seventy-seven The Strange Preacher. At Gamala, after the evening question and answer session with Jesus, John said, Master, yesterday in Ashtaroth, there was a man preaching in your name and who claimed to be able to cast out devils. This man does not follow us. And he has never been with us. So I forbid him from doing this. And Jesus said, Do not stop him from preaching in my name. Can you see that this gospel will soon be preached in all of the world? How can you think that you are going to be in charge of everyone believing in the gospel? Be happy that your teachings are already starting to spread beyond just your influence. Can you see that those who say they do great works in my name must eventually support us? That they will not be quick to say bad things about us? My son, in this kind of a situation, it would be better for you to figure that he who is not against us is with us in the future generations to come, there are going to be a lot of people who are not wholly worthy doing many strange things in my name. And I will not stop them. I am telling you that even when a cup of cold water is given to a thirsty soul, the Father's messengers will record that loving service. Now, now, All of this that Jesus said just confused John. Had he not heard Jesus say that, He who is not with me is against me? John did not understand that in this case, Jesus was referring to the individual, a man's personal relationship to the gospel. While the other situation, related to social relationships, administrative control, and the jurisdiction of one group of believers over the work of others in the worldwide brotherhood. John remembered this episode many times in his future work for the kingdom. But regardless, the apostle still tended to get upset with anyone who had not been taught by Jesus, teaching in his name. The man who John tried to stop preaching continued to do so. His name was Aiden, and he came to believe in Jesus after the lunatic near Coresha had been so confident when telling him that Jesus had cast a demon out of him, put it into a herd of pigs, and then ran them off the face of the cliff. Aiden acquired a fair-sized gathering of believers around him before he headed back to Mesopotamia. Instruction for Teachers and Believers When Jesus was visiting Thomas and his crew in Edriae, he taught them about the principles needed to activate and guide those who preach the truth, and teach the gospel of the kingdom. Restated for us today, Jesus taught them the following. Always respect a man's personality. Never promote a righteous cause by force. Spiritual victory can only come from spiritual power. And this refers to physical force, as well as using mental superiority and overpowering arguments to coerce or bend men's arms to get them into the kingdom. You cannot crush another man's mind with the mere weight of logic, or by overcoming them with fancy words. While you cannot eliminate emotion as a factor in your teaching, do not directly appeal to a person's emotions to advance the kingdom. Rather, make your appeals directly to the divine spirit in the other person's mind. Do not use fear, pity, or emotional outburst to spread the gospel. Instead, exercise self-control and respect your students. Remember what I have told you. See me. I stand at the door and knock, and if a man opens it, I will enter. When bringing men into the kingdom, do not lessen or destroy their self-respect. While too much self-respect can destroy humility, and end in pride, conceit, and arrogance. The loss of self-respect often ends up paralyzing one's will. It is the purpose of this gospel to restore self-respect to those who have lost it, and to restrain it in those who have it. Do not make the mistake of only telling people what they are doing wrong. Remember to also fully recognize the praiseworthy things in their lives. Never forget that I will stop at nothing to restore self-respect to those who have lost it and who really want it back. Be careful that you do not wound the self-respect of timid and fearful souls. Do not be sarcastic at the expense of my simple-minded followers. Do not be cynical with my fear-ridden children. Idleness destroys self-respect. So, urge your followers to stay busy at their jobs and to make every effort to find one if they are unemployed. Never try to frighten people into the kingdom. A loving father does not scare his children into obeying him. You must realize that strong emotional feelings are not the same as the leadings of the divine spirit. Just because you are strongly or strangely impelled to do something or to go somewhere, it does not necessarily mean that you are following the spirit warn your followers about the tension or the conflict that they will have to get through when they pass from life in the flesh to the higher life of the Spirit. Those people living fully in either realm, that of the flesh or that of the Spirit, have little conflict or confusion. But, When moving between those two realms of living, everyone will experience the uncertainty that comes along with it. You cannot escape your responsibilities when entering the kingdom. But remember, the yoke of the gospel is easy, and the burden of truth is light. The world is filled with hungry souls starving, in the very presence of the bread of life, men die searching for the very God in sight of them. Men seek for the kingdom's treasures with weary feet and yearning hearts when all of it is within their immediate reach. Faith is to religion what sails are to a ship, it gives power. It does not slow you down or add to life's burdens. There is only one struggle for those who enter the kingdom and that is the fight or the good fight of faith. The believer has only one battle and that is against doubt, unbelief. When you preach the gospel of the kingdom, you are just teaching people how to be friends with God, and this relationship will appeal to and satisfy people's ideals and longings. Tell my children that I am not only tender and patient with their feelings and frailties, but that I am also ruthless with sin and intolerant of iniquity. I am indeed meek and and humble in the presence of my Father, but I am just as relentless against deliberate sin and rebellion against his will. You will not tell others that I am a man of sorrows. Future generations will also know our radiant joy, buoyant goodwill, and inspirational good good humor. We are announcing good news that is infectious in its power to transform. Our religion is throbbing with new life and new meaning. Those who accept this teaching are filled with joy and in their hearts rejoice forever. Increasing happiness is always the experience of everyone who is certain about God. Teach your followers to not rely on false sympathy. You cannot develop strong characters indulging in self-pity. Honestly try to avoid wallowing in misery with others. Give sympathy to the brave and courageous people while not giving too much pity to those cowardly souls who only half-heartedly stand up life's trials. Do not console those who give up without trying. Do not give sympathy just so you will get it. Once a person becomes self-conscious of the divine presence inside of them, their faith expands their mind, ennobles their soul, reinforces their personality, augments their happiness, deepens their spiritual perception, and enhances their power to love and to be loved. Teach your followers that they are not immune to accidents or natural catastrophes. Believing in the gospel does not prevent trouble, but it does ensure that you will not be afraid of it when it comes. If you dare to believe in me and follow after me, you will most certainly run into trouble. I do not promise to get rid of your problems, but I do promise to go through all of them with you. Jesus taught the group a lot more that night, and those present treasured his teachings and often repeated them for the others who were not there. The talk with Nathaniel. Jesus went, Jesus then went to Abelia to work with Nathaniel and the disciples that were there. Nathanael was upset about some of Jesus' statements that countered the authority of the Hebrew Scriptures. So, after the usual evening session with everyone else, Nathanael got Jesus aside and asked, Master, would you trust me to know the truth about the Scriptures? I see that you only teach us the best of the sacred writings. Am I right that you reject the rabbi's teachings because you have been with God before the times of Abraham and Moses, and your law is the very word of God? What is true in the scriptures? When Jesus answered, his bewildered apostle, he said, Nathaniel, you are right. I do not hold the scriptures in the same regard as the rabbis. I will tell you about this as long as you do not tell the others, because not all of them are ready to hear it. Before Abraham, there were no scriptures or Moses' law. It was only in recent times that the scriptures have been gathered together. While they contain the best of Jewish philosophy and the desires of their people, they also contain a lot that does not represent the character and teachings of God the Father. So I have to pick and choose from the best of the scriptures to find the truths for my teachings. The scriptures were written by men, some holy, some not so holy. They represent the level of enlightenment of the people when they were written. When it comes to revealing the truth, the later scriptures are more dependable than those in the beginning. And while the scriptures were written by men and they are full of error, they still make up the best collection of religious and spiritual truth on the world at this time. Many of the scriptures were written by people other than the supposed author, but that in no way detracts from their truth. Even if the story of Jonah and the whale is not true, even if Jonah never lived, the story would still bring forth its truth and be just as precious to those who read it. The scriptures are sacred because they bring forth the facts and thoughts of men who were searching for God and who, in these writings, recorded their highest ideals of truth, holiness, and righteousness. The scriptures contain a lot that is true, and an awful lot. Excuse me, the scriptures contain a lot that is true, an awful lot. But in light of what you have been taught, you know that they also contain much that is not correct about the loving God I am showing the world. Nathaniel, never for one moment believe the parts of the scriptures that say God told you or your ancestors to go to war and kill all of their enemies, men, women, and children. These are not the words of very holy men. They are not the word of God. The scriptures have always, and always will, reflect the moral, spiritual, and intellectual status of the people who wrote them you can see that the idea of Yahweh grows in glory and beauty as the prophets wrote the records from Samuel to Isaiah. And always remember, the scriptures were written for religious and spiritual guidance. They were not written by historians or philosophers. The most disgraceful thing about all of this is not just the idea that the scriptures are perfect, but the confused way the tradition enslaved scribes and Pharisees interpret them. And now, they are going to use both those wrong teachings and their wrong interpretations of those teachings to resist the newer lessons of the gospel. Never forget, Nathaniel, that my father does not limit the revelation of truth to any one generation or to any one people. Many people who have been earnest in searching for the truth have been and will continue to be confused and disheartened by this idea that the scriptures are completely true. Truth is the very spirit that is inside of you. It is not the dead words of less developed people in the past. And even if those supposedly holy men in the past lived inspired, spirit-filled lives, that does not mean that their words were also spiritually inspired. Today, among us, We are not making any record of the teachings of the Gospel in case, when I am gone, that all of you become divided because each of you interpret my truths differently. For this generation, it is best that we live these truths rather than making a record of them. Mark my words well, Nathaniel. Nothing that human nature has touched, is infallible. Divine truth may indeed shine forth through the minds of men, but it will always be relatively pure and partially divine. The creature may want to be perfect, but only the creators are. But the greatest error in teaching the Scriptures is the doctrine that they are sealed books of wisdom and mystery that only the nation's wisest minds dare interpret. The revelations of divine truth are not sealed by God, only by man's bigotry, human ignorance, and narrow-minded intolerance. The light that the scriptures bring forth is only dimmed by prejudice and darkened, by superstition. A false fear that the scriptures are sacred, in other words, that they are actually the word of God, has prevented religion from being kept safe from people using their common sense. The fear that the sacred writings of the past actually have some kind of authority effectively stops honest souls today from accepting the new light of the gospel, the same light that those same God-knowing men of another generation so intensely longed to see. But the saddest feature of all of this is the fact that some of the people teaching the tradition that the scriptures are sacred know it to be a lie. They more or less fully understand the truth that the scriptures are limited. But they keep this knowledge from the people because they are moral cowards and intellectually dishonest. Instead, they pervert and distort the scriptures and make the people slaves to a set of detailed rules on how to live their daily lives. Instead of preserving the scriptures as a library of moral wisdom, religious inspiration, and the spiritual teachings of God-knowing men of other generations. Nathaniel got this. He understood what Jesus was saying, and he was shocked by it. Many times he thought deep in his soul about this talk with Jesus, and he told no one about what Jesus said until after he was killed. But even then, he was afraid to tell others all that Jesus had told him to do. The Positive Nature of Jesus' Religion When Jesus made it to Philadelphia, where James was teaching, he taught his disciples about the positive nature of the gospel. After Jesus had suggested in his lesson, like he had told Nathaniel in more detail, that some parts of the scriptures contained more truth than others, and that they were supposed to search out and feed their soul on the best of them, James interrupted Jesus and asked, Would you be good enough, Master, to tell us how to choose the best scriptures, for our personal growth. And Jesus said, Yes, James. When you read the scriptures, look for those eternally true and divinely beautiful teachings, like, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I will not want. You should love your neighbor as yourself. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying, Fear not, I will help you. Neither will the nations learn war anymore. And in this way, day by day, Jesus used the cream of the Hebrew scriptures to teach his followers. And he included them in the new gospel of the kingdom. Other religions hinted that God was near man. But Jesus made the cornerstone of his religion the fact that God cares for man like a father cares for his dependent kids. And from that doctrine of the fatherhood of God comes our priority to practice the brotherhood of man. The entirety, the sum and substance of Jesus' religion is worshiping God and serving humanity. Jesus took the best of Judaism and gave it a new life in his gospel of the kingdom. Instead of teaching the passive way of complying with rules, about what not to do, like the Jews did. Jesus taught the spirit of positive action, expecting his followers to do positive things that his religion required. Jesus' religion is based on doing, not just believing. He did not teach that the spirit of his religion was serving others, but instead that serving others was the natural result of those who have the spirit of true religion. Jesus took what worked and left the rest. He did not hesitate to take one half of a scripture, the good part, and discard the rest of it. His great command, Love your neighbor as yourself. He took from the scripture that reads, You will not take vengeance against the children of your people, but you will love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus took the positive part and rejected the negative half. Jesus was also against pacifism, or pure non-resistance, saying, When an enemy smites you on one cheek, do not stand there dumb and passive but with a positive attitude, turn the other cheek. That means, do the best thing possible to actively lead your brother in error away from his evil path and into the better ways of righteous living. Jesus required his followers to react positively and aggressively to every life situation. The idea behind turning the other cheek, or whatever act that represents, is that a positive action demands initiative and requires active, vigorous, and, cor- and the courageous expression of a person's personality. Jesus was not saying to submit oneself to the abuse of people who are hurting them because they knew they would not fight back. Instead, he was telling his people to be wise and alert when this happens and to look for a quick, positive way to react that overcomes that evil with good. Never forget that truly good is always more powerful than the worse evil. Jesus taught that righteousness came from positive actions, that whoever wants to be my disciple, let him disregard himself and take up the full measure of his daily responsibilities to follow me. And Jesus taught by example, as in, he went about doing good. Many of his later parables well portrayed this part of the gospel. Jesus never told his followers to patiently bear their obligations. He told them to go out with energy and enthusiasm and live up to all of their human responsibilities and divine privileges that come with being members in the kingdom of God. When Jesus told his followers that if someone stole their coat, they were to offer them a second he did not mean that they were to literally give the thief another coat. He was trying to get across the idea of doing something positive instead of falling back on the old ways of an eye for an eye and so on. Jesus hated the ideas of both retaliation and just passively suffering injustice. At this meeting, Jesus taught them the three ways to contend with and resist evil. First, to return evil for evil, the positive but unrighteous method. Second, to suffer evil without complaining or resisting, the purely negative method. third. To return good for evil. To assert the will so as to become master of the situation. To overcome evil with good. The positive and righteous method. One of the apostles asked, Master, what should I do if a stranger forced me to carry his pack for a mile? And Jesus said, Do not sit down and cry for relief while you cuss the stranger under your breath. Righteousness does not come from passive attitudes like that. If you can think of nothing more effective or positive to do, you can at least carry the pack a second mile. That will certainly challenge the ungodly and unrighteous stranger. The Jews had been told of a God that would forgive sinners who asked for forgiveness. But it was not until Jesus came that people heard about a God who took the initiative and actually went out searching for sinners, and who then rejoiced when they were willing to return to the Father's house. This positive note extended to his prayers. And he converted the golden rule into a positive declaration of human fairness. In everything that he taught, Jesus avoided distractions. He stayed away from flowery flowery language and poetic imagery playing on words. His habit was to put big meaning into small words, to illustrate something Jesus often reversed the current meanings of those terms, like salt, leaven, fishing, and little children. Using the antithesis or opposite of things, he compared the little to the infinite, and so on. His illustrations were striking, like the blind leading the blind. But Jesus' greatest strength was his natural and naturalness he brought the philosophy of religion down from heaven to us on earth he showed us the basic needs of the soul with new insight and affection the return to Magadan the four weeks in a Decopolis were moderately successful hundreds of souls were received into the kingdom and the apostles and evangelists gained valuable experience working without Jesus' personal and immediate presence. On Friday, September 16th, everyone met up in Magadan Park like they had planned. On Saturday, more than 100 of them held talks on how to further extend the kingdom. David's messengers were there, and they reported what was happening in Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and the other districts. Not many of Jesus' followers fully appreciated David Zebedee and the Messengers' work. Not only did they keep everyone in touch with each other, but during these dark days they collected donations, not only for Jesus and the apostles, but for the 24 families of the apostles. And 12 evangelists. About this time, Abner moved his operations from Hebron to Bethlehem, which was also the Judean headquarters for David's messengers. He had an overnight relay service going between Jerusalem and Bethsaida, and the messengers would stop by Sychar and Sephopolis before getting into. Bethsaida in the morning. Jesus and the others took a week off to rest before entering the last period of their work together. This next Parian mission ended up extending itself right on to their arrival in Jerusalem and the closing scenes of Jesus' time on earth. Okay, everyone, that's it for Chapter 39, The Decapolis Tour. Next up in a few days is Chapter 40, Rodin of Alexandria. Defend liberty. Protect those kids. Get out there and find some way to serve man for nothing more or less than the sake of God. Godspeed, everybody. Bobby Keezer out here.